Now, we are moving along here. We're still in chapter 1. And I am trying to make the, the sheet work for you. The first couple times I gave some questions, and somebody was saying they were kind of hard to follow along as I was going along, and they got a little bit lost. So what I tried to give you on this third sheet, this may look more confusing than anything that I've given you heretofore, but uh, this is what I do with a passage. When I'm trying to study a passage, this is the kind of thing I do with it. So I'm, I'm trying to show you in something of a schematic or a diagram how this passage works. And I kept discovering more and more amazing things yesterday as I was trying to put this, the slides together and this together for you. Uh, things began to jump out and I began to see an amazing symmetry in this passage. And it breaks down into four sections, and each, each of those four sections has two things in it. And that's why I call this four twos. Um, and I added, you have the verse numbers there. I'm afraid this could be confusing. In my effort to elucidate, I may be um, making it more difficult. But if you will look in each section, I put a big number one and a big number two. And so you'll see that in there. One and two, one and two, one and two, one and two. So as we go through this, look for that. This is the text itself. Uh, and what I've tried to show is how Paul has these sections, and then there are these arrows. And these arrows, I just discovered yesterday, I, I realized how, how ingenious and how beautiful this is. And these arrows, uh, one section ends with an idea, and that leads into the next section, which ends with an idea, which leads into the next section, which ends with an idea, that leads into the next section. So I hope that this will be uh, helpful to you and that it will help you see and understand and follow the way Paul is presenting this argument here. Now, I will have these slides for you as well. Two benefits, two types of preachers, two possible outcomes, in parentheses, really only one, and then two good options, okay? So, follow along with the text as we go through this. Now, as you will recall, where was Paul? Where was Paul when he was writing this? He was in prison, Probably in Rome. There are some other theories, but I'm going with Rome. And I'll tell you a little bit more why today. So he was in Rome. On his way to Rome, he had a number of troubles. Before he got to Rome, he had troubles. He was arrested. He was accused falsely. He was imprisoned. He was left in prison for a couple of years. He was uh, subject to the, uh, an attempt to extort him. And uh, he was subject to a plot on his life. And because of that plot on his life, he had to appeal to Caesar. They sent him to Caesar, but they really didn't have an accusation to send along with him. And so on the way, he gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by a venomous snake. It was not a pleasant journey. But finally, he gets to Rome, and now he's in a Roman prison. Things were not going well for Paul, and the Philippians found out about it. So the Philippians are deeply concerned about Paul. They want to help again, and so they send money again, and they send one of their best to go minister to him. What was his name? Epaphroditus, right? Epaphroditus. Why didn't you think of that when you were naming your children? We'll learn more about Epaphroditus later. Amazing guy. But they sent Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus gets there. They're going to minister to poor Paul, who's rotting away unjustly in this Roman prison. And Paul writes them back and says, Don't worry about me. 
Don't worry about me. I'm fine. And that's what he says. I, I, I identify with this letter because this was a missionary letter. I was a missionary, am a missionary still, and I write letters to the people who pray for us and to the people who support us. And I write them letters, and in every letter I say, this is how it's going. And sometimes I say it's going well, sometimes I say it's not going well, but I, I know what he's doing here. And he starts by writing this letter. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So he's saying, don't worry. Don't be sad for me. What's happened has two main benefits. Now, for some reason, these slides should have come up one by one, one verse by one, but they all came up at once. So, the first benefit. The first benefit is here. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This, uh, this expression here, the imperial guard, is the praetorian guard. And the praetorian guard was an elite imperial guard. Now, it could have been stationed other places, but one of the most likely places for it to be stationed was in Rome. And that's one of the arguments for this letter being from Rome. So he says, the first thing is, the whole praetorian guard, this elite uh, Green Beret imperial unit, they know why I'm here. They've heard about why I'm here, and they know it's for the cause of Christ. But not only they, who else? Who else knew about it? Everyone was hearing about it. This was the talk of the town. This is the talk of the capital of the Roman Empire. Paul, this Jewish man, he's in prison. Why is he in prison? Something to do with somebody called Christ. So all of a sudden, Christ was being talked about. So Paul says, this is great. This is great. This is wonderful. Uh, when we got to our uh, the city in Mexico, Guadalajara, uh, not everybody was happy that we were there. And so we got some hate mail uh, telling us to cease and desist and to leave and we don't need you here. And, um, and then there, was an, uh, there were a couple attempts in the community to organize against us. And uh, though, so they, they got some young people to go out and knock on some doors and tell them that we're here and, and uh, warn them against us. And a couple of the first, we only had about three families. And two of the first doors they knocked on were two of those families. So I heard about this campaign almost immediately. And so uh, one of the ladies called me up and said, can you believe this? I'm going to tell them where to get off. And I'm going to, I said, don't do a thing. They have kids going around and telling all the neighbors that we're here. Isn't this great? They're giving us all this free publicity. This is fabulous. Don't do anything. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm in prison, yes, but the fact that I'm in prison, people are talking about why I'm here. Why did this guy get here? Shipwrecked along the way. He came here. He showed up here, and now he seems to be pals with the, the centurion that got him here. And what's this all about? Well, it's something to do with somebody called Christ. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is... Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is kind of ironic, isn't it? So the, the ringleader, if you will, the leader, gets thrown in prison for speaking about Christ, for speaking about the gospel. And so that encourages everyone else to do the same. Doesn't that seem remarkable to you? That they, they grew in boldness instead of saying, 
whoa, don't want that to happen to us. If that's what happened to Paul for speaking the gospel, well, we better be pretty discreet here. We better keep our mouths shut, better not talk too much about this. But the effect was exactly the opposite, that they were all the more bold to speak the gospel without fear. Now, how would that happen? We don't know exactly, but it looks like these two probably go together. Paul's case became well known. So people were talking about this Christ. And they happened to be talking about this Christ, and there happened to be one of these Christians present. What an opportunity, right? All of a sudden, people didn't even have to broach the subject. They didn't even have to, the Christians didn't have to bring it up because people were talking about this. And so it looks like they had more opportunities as people were talking about Christ. And we do this today, right? We have special events. What times of year do we have special events? Christmas, right? There it is. Everybody's saying Christ's name. They have no idea why they're saying it, but we have these opportunities to say, hey, could I tell you a little bit about this Christ that you're talking about? And so it looks like something like that could have been going on in Rome. Now, um, Paul was saying this to cheer them up and saying, look, this is not a good thing, the way I've been treated. It's not a good thing, all the things that I've suffered. But the results are good. There are benefits here that couldn't have been imagined. And by the way, Paul had already written a letter to the church in Rome. He did not start the church in Rome. We don't know how the church in Rome got started. But it was already thriving uh, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Romans, said, I want to visit you. I want to visit you so, can I, so that I can have fruit among you as well. Guess what? Guess what he got to do? He got to be there in Rome. And what was happening? He was having fruit among them as well. So Paul was saying, I may be bound, but the Word of God is not bound. And it, there is a text that says exactly that. Second Timothy it was probably the last letter that Paul wrote, and it was right before his death. And so this was in another subsequent Roman imprisonment when he's writing Second Timothy. So it looks like he was in Rome in prison twice. This first one, this present one, when he wrote Philippians, it looks like he was released from that. And then he had further ministry. It's not recorded in Acts. And then he wrote Second Timothy towards the end of his life. And he wrote this, 2 Timothy 8 through 10. He said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, Paul wrote that later, some years later, right before he died. But he could have written that at this point when he was in the first Roman imprisonment, couldn't he? He could have said, yes, here I am. I'm bound. But guess what? The Word of God is not bound. This is turning out for good. And it's encouraging the majority of the, the brothers to preach the gospel. Now, we can take a lesson from that. Uh, anybody here ever gone through some adverse circumstances? 
Anybody ever suffered an injustice? Oh my, you're saying yes, of course, all of us, right? And the longer you live, the more adverse circumstances you suffer and the more injustices uh, you suffer. Am I right? Yes. What can we do with those things? Well, what did Paul do with that? What was his example? He said, yes, indeed, I'm not celebrating the circumstances in and of themselves, but these, even these, God has placed me in these circumstances for the greater glory of Christ, for the preaching of the gospel, and to encourage others to preach the gospel. If we could have that mentality, when, when, when we're suffering adversity or injustice, and I'm always marveling at Paul. He's in prison and he says, pray for us. And I would do the same thing. I would write and say, pray for me that I would get out of here really, really soon. Right? And he says, pray. Pray that the gospel would go forward and that God would use whatever circumstances are in my life so that the gospel would go forward. And so he ends with this, speak the word without fear. And if you go back to the sheet I gave you, that is the final idea of that first section, which leads into the second section, which is about speaking the word, which is about preaching. Now let's see if these come up. As, yes, okay. And so we go from that last verse, which was speak the word, to the next verse of so verse 14, speak the word. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. So it flows into this next section. And what I, uh, what I mentioned I like to do is I like to, to pull out all the subordinate clauses and try to get the main idea. Let's see if this comes up right. Some indeed preach Christ. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that, if you strip out everything in the middle, that's his basic idea. So the first verse, 15, and then if you jump down to the last verse of this section, uh, where it's at the end of verse 18, some indeed preach Christ, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And this continues on with the idea that he's trying to get across to the Philippians. Look, Philippians, I appreciate your concern for me, and he's going to thank them profusely in the last chapter for their concern. And praise them for it. But here he's saying, don't pity me. I'm rejoicing. Why? Well, some indeed preach Christ. Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And we've already seen that this is a, a major theme in Philippians. Joy. Because the Philippians were lacking in joy for one reason we've talked about today, which was because they were concerned about Paul. They were concerned, so they were not being joyful. What was the other reason they were lacking joy? Do you remember? Because they were fighting among themselves. They had conflict in the church, and it had sapped the joy of the church. So he keeps going back to this, joy, joy, joy. Now, um, here we have the two. We have the two types of preachers. He said some preach Christ, but let's see the two types of preachers that were preaching Christ says that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And here are the two types of preachers. They're preachers who preach Christ. All of them, amazingly, are preaching Christ. So it's not that some are preaching Christ and others are preaching something else. They're all preaching Christ, but some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter, who are the latter? It's these others, 
right? And so I've tried to, I don't know if you can see the color codes here, but I've tried to put envy, rivalry, those are in red, goodwill, and love. And we're going to try to, try to line up these adjectives that describe these two types of preachers. So we have two types. We have the envy and rivalry group. We have the others, the goodwill group. And the goodwill group, they're preaching out of love. Now, this is the second time that Paul mentions love. The first time, let's see, the first time is back in Philippians 1. Well, it's still in Philippians 1, but verse 9. If you look at verse 9, he mentioned it there. We didn't spend much time on the word love. Actually, we didn't mention really the word love itself. We talked about the love of the Philippians. And this was part of the prayer of Paul for the Philippians. Let me find my place here. Philippians 1, verse 9. Do you remember when he was praying for them? In verse 9, last week we saw, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he had prayed for them. First he'd praised them and he said, you all are amazing. No, you've shared with me so many times. You've been generous. You've been great. I have you in my heart and I long for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. So gushing with love. And then he says, I pray for you, you most loving of churches, that you would grow even more in love. And here he says that some of the preachers in Rome were preaching out of love. And so this word love, there are different words for love in the New Testament, but this is the word, maybe you've heard it, this is agape. And uh, here we can get from the context what this means. What were the Philippians doing when he was praising them and praying for them? Well, they were giving of themselves for the benefit of Paul. And he was saying, I want you to grow even more in that. What were these preachers who were preaching out of love? What were they doing? They were sacrificing themselves so that others might hear the gospel. And so we have these two examples of love. The Philippians are an example of love, and he wants them to grow more and more. And the Romans were an example of love in their preaching the gospel. So some did it out of love, some out of envy and rivalry. Now we get back to the former. The former, so the latter are the, the ones, goodwill and love. The former proclaimed Christ out of two more words that are in red here, selfish ambition, and then not sincerely. So here we're lining up these words. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and insincerity. And on the other side, we have goodwill and love. Now, we'll keep filling in, and here we have some, some participles. So it says, the latter preach Christ out of love. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. The latter do it out of love, knowing, knowing. The former proclaim Christ thinking. Okay, what do the first ones know? Well, the latter, the group, the loving group, they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So they know why Paul's there. And knowing that, they join in. And they do the same thing that Paul was doing. Now, the former, that is the envy and rivalry group, they proclaim Christ thinking to afflict me in my prison. Now, there's a difference between knowing and thinking, right? Knowing they're certain about this. They know that Paul is there for the defense of the gospel. And they say, we want in too. We're going to participate too. If he can do this, we can participate as well. Now, the, the envy, rivalry, uh, selfish ambition, not sincerely group, they were thinking, thinking that they were going to cause Paul affliction. 
that, using that, that word, that participle, what's the idea there? They were thinking they could do it, but what? What's the implication? They couldn't. They just thought they could, but they really couldn't. Now, this is curious. Why did they think that they could cause Paul affliction in prison for doing exactly what Paul was doing and for doing what Paul wanted them to do? Do you see the problem there? Why would that cause Paul affliction? Or rather, why did they think that it would cause Paul affliction? And there are a couple of different possibilities there. And I waver a little bit between these, although I'll tell you, I think, which, which, to which one I incline. Um, looking at these words here, uh, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, not sincerely, gives us the idea that they were really preaching the gospel, but they thought, hey, the popular preacher, he's sidelined now. The one, the, the famous preacher, he's sidelined. Paul is sidelined. So this is our opportunity to shine. Paul can't go around preaching, but we can. So we're going to take advantage of the fact that everybody's talking about Paul and his case and talking about Christ. And we're going to say, hey, do you want to know about that? I'll tell you all about it. And they could jump in and gain notoriety for themselves. I think that fits well here. Now, the other explanation is that maybe they were tweaking things. They were preaching Christ, but they were tweaking things in some way that Paul would not have been very happy about. So there was something not quite right with their message, not only with their methods. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but we will find out later that there were enemies of the gospel. These don't seem to be enemies of the gospel, do they? They weren't distorting the gospel itself, but Maybe, maybe, this is another suggestion, it's not the one to which I incline, but maybe they were preaching Christ, but in a way that might have made Paul a little uncomfortable. I, th I tend to like the, the, the first explanation. They were simply wanting to shine. They were simply wanting personal glory, selfish ambition, envy, uh, uh, let's see, um, rivalry. They were just wanting to be the most popular preachers on the block. It looks like that. Now, um, what then? Paul asked the question. We got these two types of preachers. By the way, do you think these two types of preachers still exist? <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll make a confession. Daryl's not like this, I'm sure. But sometimes these two types of preachers exist in the same person. Sometimes this is a, a struggle within preachers, ourselves. Um, so this is a great opportunity for those of us who do preach the gospel to ask ourselves, why do we preach the gospel? Is it out of goodwill? Is it out of love? Or is there something in there about selfish ambition and wanting to make a name for ourselves? So this is a good heart check for those of us who are preachers. Um, but Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, and here's the final, the final contrast here. If we want to add another red word, what's the word? Whether in pretense or in, and here's the good word, truth, Christ is proclaimed. So on the one hand, we have envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, not sincerely, pretense. How would you like that on your resume? 
But on the other side, we have goodwill, love, and truth. Much better. But Paul says, what about it? What are we going to make of all this? And you might think he'd say, you get out and tell those selfish ambition, envy, uh, not sincere, pretentious preachers to stop it. But what's he say? The preaching Christ. Christ is proclaimed. The message is on target. Christ is proclaimed. And that's what I'm all about. And that's what my life is all about. And that's what my imprisonment is all about. And if my imprisonment could serve even to stir up selfishly ambitious, pretentious preachers to preach Christ, I'm not justifying their methods, but I'm going to rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. So that's the second two, the second pair. The first pair to what? To benefits. The second pair, two types of preachers. Okay. Um, We can also learn something, if we can learn something from Paul from his treatment of adverse circumstances, we can learn something further about how he treated adverse circumstances because he could have allowed this to get to him. He could have been upset. He uh, chose, chose the positive aspect of what was going on and rejoiced in that. So uh, he was able to look at his circumstances. They weren't good. He was able to look even at the motives of some of these preachers, and those weren't good. But even in spite of that, he was able to dig deeper and say, but I am going to rejoice because I am looking at my circumstances and I am finding that they are turning out for the greater progress of the gospel and I'm finding that Christ is being preached and I will rejoice. And here we see that in rejoicing, oftentimes we think of joy as something that happens to us, something that happens to us. But here we're seeing that it's something that Paul practices, that he does. And later in the letter, we'll find that he actually commands us to practice joy. But first, he's giving himself as an example. He's going to tell them to rejoice. But now, first of all, he's saying, you know what I'm doing? I'm rejoicing, Philippians. Kind of in parentheses. And I know that you're not. We'll get to that later. But I want you to to look at this example here. I want you to see what I'm doing with my circumstances so that you might get a clue and that you also might rejoice. That's where we're going. Okay? On to the next next pair. So he ends up with, Christ is proclaimed, and what's the last word? And in this, I Rejoice. rejoice. Okay. Section three. With what does it start? Actually, we're still in verse 18, and there's something of a debate here, and you will find in different versions of the Bible. In the first version that that I, after becoming a Christian, I started studying uh, the New American Standard Bible, excellent translation, it keeps verse 18 together. And so verse 18 reads, and in that I rejoice, and I will rejoice. So saying that Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice in that, and I will continue to rejoice in that. But this version, uh, the uh, English Standard Version, and I'm pretty sure that the New International Version as well, 
puts a period after, and in that I rejoice. By the way, the early Greek manuscripts didn't have periods. They didn't even have spaces between the words. Why? Because it was expensive, and they didn't want to use their precious material on empty space. And so we've added these grammatical symbols later. So we're not playing around with the Bible here by, by, by moving the period here or inserting a period. We're interpreting as we have to do. So the way these versions have it is, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, period, full stop, next sentence, yes, and I will rejoice. Speaking of rejoicing in the fact that Christ is preached, I will rejoice in something else. And then he goes on to this next something else. And this next something else are two outcomes. And here we're in verses 18 and 19. So you see how this is flowing? So it ends with an idea, and that launches into the next idea. Um, Now, what Paul says here is, I will rejoice... Let's see how this, this lies, uh, stripping out the, some of the subordinate clauses to begin with. I will rejoice, for I know that, so now we're going to get why he will rejoice. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So he says, I rejoice right now because Christ is proclaimed. And I will rejoice in the future, and I will continue to rejoice because I know that this, and the this What's the this? Well, the this is, uh, refers back probably to everything that he's just said. I know that this, all these circumstances, my imprisonment, the preaching of the gospel, all of this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this deliverance here is normally, I put this in brackets, and when I put something in brackets, that's to say, That's what I added, okay? I added that because that is the normal translation of this word. It can be described as deliverance, and maybe that's the right translation here. But you will find in different versions, there are different translations here. But the usual translation of this word is salvation. That's why I put it there in brackets. And so here's the big question for this section. I was was trying to figure this out, working on this yesterday, and uh, wrote one of my former professors, a New Testament professor, to ask him, and he's so kind to respond to me very immediately to help me sort through things when I get a little bit stuck. But is Paul talking about his deliverance in the sense of, I know that this will turn out for my release from prison, because he mentions that later. He mentions that in verse 25. Or is he saying, I know that this will turn out for my salvation, that is my eternal salvation. Either one would, would work pretty well with the context, wouldn't it? I know that that will turn out for my deliverance. And especially when he adds this, I know that through your prayers, verse 19, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What were the Philippians praying? Of course they were praying for Paul's deliverance for his freedom. So this seems to, to, to tilt towards the idea of, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, and uh, you're praying for that, and the Holy Spirit will bring that about, so uh, I rejoice, because this is going to happen soon. 
However, if we keep reading, this will turn out for my deliverance. What comes after that? Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Hmm. Now, he's saying, I will rejoice because this will turn out for my deliverance. And then he describes his hope for deliverance. And that hope for deliverance includes, maybe he's going to live and maybe he's going to die. So now, what's that deliverance starting to look like? Now it's starting to look like eternal salvation. So uh, either one, and, and, and by the way, the, 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 the people that, are, that give their lives to studying this uh, at an academic level, they're, they're not quite sure on this either. And obviously the translators translate it as deliverance, so they're tilting towards the idea of release. But I'm now tilting towards the idea of salvation. That he's saying that I will rejoice. Because no matter what happens to me, I have eternal salvation. And it might be curious to think of the, his salvation as coming about through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Holy Spirit, certainly the help of the Holy Spirit fits, but how do the prayers of the Philippians fit into Paul's final salvation? Not just his deliverance from prison, but his final salvation. And this might seem a little bit odd to us, but the farther we get into the letter to the Philippians, the more we will see that the attitude of Paul regarding salvation in Philippians is, I have it and I'm getting it. I've received it and I'm going for it. I'm in the process. I'm not there yet. And you Philippians aren't there yet either. So let's help each other to continue to run this race until we get to the finish line. And in that context thinking about salvation as the end of a life of persevering in faith in Jesus Christ, yes, we help each other. Yes, we pray for each other. And I, as a pastor, am constantly praying for myself, for my wife, for my children, for my, my son-in-law, for people in the church, that we would, we would continue on in the faith unto the final realization of our salvation. So while the language might sound a little bit strange to us at first, in the context of, the, of Philippians, it, it works. And here, if we look at some of these expressions, I will not at all be ashamed. And that is an expression that Paul uses a number of times about not being ashamed or not being put to shame. And uh, especially I want to look at uh, Romans chapter 10, where he uses it, and here he quotes, it's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. And here he says, Romans 10, verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there he's talking about eternal salvation. Obvious, right? He's talking about belief in Jesus Christ, confession of Jesus Christ, unto eternal salvation. And then he says in verse 11, For the scripture says, and here he quotes the Old Testament, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this expression, not be ashamed, not be put to shame, in some contexts is tantamount to saying, 
affirming the opposite, that is to say, will be declared righteous before God, will be received before God, will be saved. So not being put to shame is an expression in some places in Paul for being saved, eternally saved. Um, And here he's saying that this will happen whether I live or whether I die. And this is interesting if you look at, once again, 2 Timothy 4.18. And it's interesting to compare 2 Timothy with uh, Philippians because they were both written from Roman prisons. The first time he got out, the second time he didn't. But in uh, 2 Timothy 4.18, he writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's saying, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. And shortly after that, according to tradition anyway, he was killed. But he says, basically, so? Nothing evil happened to me. The Lord brought me safely into His kingdom. And so here we see that His rejoicing was rejoicing even knowing that one of the outcomes could have been death. And that's why I say really only one. So there were two possible outcomes here. One was living and one was dying. But he could rejoice because he knew that either way, what did he have? Eternal salvation. So either way, it was going to be okay. Better than okay. He was going to have eternal salvation. And so he said, I will rejoice. And here once again we see the element of will in rejoicing. No matter what happens, I will rejoice. Why? Because I know that this, what? Everything. All the circumstances. They will all turn out for my ultimate deliverance for my salvation. Can we say that? If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we can say that. No matter what happens to us, we can say, I know that this, whatever it might be, that this will turn out for my ultimate deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ, my eternal salvation. And then he says this famous, famous line. If people know any lines from Philippians, this is probably one of them. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. A wonderful summary statement that, whichever, it's win-win. If I live, it's Christ. That's what I'm all about. And if I die, it's gain. And these two go together. We shouldn't separate these. For me, to live is Christ then to die is gain. If for me to live is not Christ, then I really ought not to think that dying will be gain. In fact, dying would be the ultimate loss if for to me to live is not Christ. And so we ought not to separate these. I've gone to many, many funerals, and you've probably gone as a pastor, and you've probably gone to more than I have, being somewhat farther down the road of life than I am, And uh, what I found at many funerals is these things are separated. Somebody has lived a life that has not been a life that has to do with Christ. 
And then there is oftentimes this supposition that he or she is somehow in a better place. And they've severed this verse in two. For this person, maybe life was selfish pursuit. But then all of a sudden at the end, we're going to say to die is gain. We need to be careful here. Because Paul says, no, those for whom to live is Christ are the ones who can say, I will rejoice because dying is gain. Now, that last idea is, if you look at your outline, to live, and then he starts the last section with what? Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I think we can finish this. We have a few minutes. And here we have two options. And these two options are not the options of living or dying. Exactly. These two options are the options of fruitful labor or being with Christ. Living will lead to one and dying will lead to the other. Let's see how Paul breaks this down. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now we have an idea of what it means for to me to live is Christ. What does it mean? It means to serve Christ. It means to be fruitful in Christ and for the benefit of others. So he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. But to remain in the flesh, and here we jump down to 24. I'm not doing this in order, but on your sheets it's in order because I'm trying to put the parallels here. Live in the flesh, fruitful labor for me. Remain in the flesh, more necessary on your account for the Philippians. Convinced of this, that I know that I will remain and continue with you all. These are all parallel statements. For your progress and joy in the faith. Progress and joy in the faith. And then he says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So these are all the... These are all one side of the option. This is one option. Living in the flesh, remaining in the flesh, remaining and continuing with you all, coming to you again. And these mean fruitful labor. They mean serving the Philippians and others. They mean serving them for progress and joy in the faith. And they mean giving them cause to glory, to give thanks in Christ Jesus. That's one side. Well, that's one option. Good option, right? That sounds like a life well lived, doesn't it? A life well spent. For the good of others and for the glory of Christ. The other option is even better. After living a life like that, Paul says, Yet which I choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. And what's the other side? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Great options, aren't they? Wow, a wonderful life or being with Christ. You can't go wrong. If you are in Christ, these are the two options. Now, I want you to see here what happens to the believer who dies? Where is she? Where is he, according to Paul? With Christ. No waiting period. 
with Christ immediately. And that was his expectation, that immediately he would be with Christ. And so, when we talk about somebody who really is in Christ, we can say, he or she is in a better place, because he or she is immediately with Christ. Now, I want to show you how this one last thing here, and it's a literary technique, it's called inclusio, and I picked out the first verse and the second to last verse. Paul says here, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Jumping down to 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. These are the same word in the original. So he says here, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served for the progress of the gospel. And then he talks about the different options and so on. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. And what else? Joy in the gospel. And these are two. So he, inclusio is bookending. So he starts, and, and that's, a, that's a literary technique. So he starts and ends with the same word. And that's how we know that this is a, kind of a literary unit that hangs together, one of the reasons. But also here we have this. We have progress, progress, and we also have joy that wraps it all up. Our time is up, but it's been a joyful, a joyful experience to be here with you and to reflect on rejoicing in adverse circumstances, if the gospel's going forth, and rejoicing in everything, because if we are in Christ, our salvation is secure. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Give thanks. Father, we do thank you that in everything, if we are in Christ, we can rejoice. And I pray that all of us would be in Christ through faith in Him, and that we would be able to face whatever circumstances we have and say, I rejoice, I will rejoice, because I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.